Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I am the Bill Arnold part of that sentence. Uh, We're going to have a wonderful hour with Guy Talk today. It's Thursday, so we've got the uh, Guy Talk starting hour one, and hour two will be the amazing and beautiful Queens of the Roundtable. So that's what's ahead. The power panel assembling today is Dr. Peter Kapsner and Brad Johnson and Dr. Josh Mulvihill. So it's going to be a great, great hour. If you have anything you'd like to throw at us, let us know what it is, 877-933-933. 2484. Again, that's a text line only, 877-933-2484. So we'll take 60 seconds and then we'll get started. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. How true that is. It is so important to learn and grow in our faith by getting into God's word every day. Faith Radio can help with that. Just go to myfaithradio.com and sign up for the verse of the day. You'll receive a daily email with scripture and encouragement. Or sign up through a web link by texting the word VERSE to 555-888. Keep growing in your faith with the Faith Radio Verse of the Day. It's the intersection of faith and life. Faith Radio. I've listened because of the talk all all day long. And I listen on my phone now on the internet. So all the lectures and the speakers are what I listen to. From wake up till shut down, I, I have it on. I listen to many of the programs, in the morning programs, the afternoon programs, and I just find it very uplifting when I listen to it throughout the day. Um, well, for me, I listen on my commute home. Thanks for making us your radio home. Faith Radio. Welcome to the show. So glad to have Guy Talk underway. Got the power panel of Dr. Peter Kapsner, Brad Johnson, Dr. Josh Mulvihill, and myself. So it is just a delight to be around the table, around the semicircle. Gentlemen, welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Val. Great Thank to be you. with you. Good to be here. And Josh, you were here Monday, and I talked to you into coming back today. So this is... Must have meant good things. It was very good things. So I appreciate uh, you coming back and being part of this power panel. And Peter, you were just in Scotland. I was. With the fam? Yep, seeing my family over there. It was really fun to be there for about 10 days or so. Yeah? Yeah. How how did everything go? Well, it was good. You know, they've really settled into life over there. They just were doing sort of a homeschool semester abroad over there for about three or four months, expose our kids to a different way of life and different thinking. And boy, it's it's really taken root in some interesting ways. It was just really great to see them and saw quite a few changes actually too. So That's awesome. And Brad, how was your Thanksgiving? Well, it was great. It was, uh, you know, I'm a granddad now. So When did um, that happen? Well, uh, what, two and a half years ago? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it made just, it sound like it happened yesterday. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, it, and actually, it, it was the first uh, Thanksgiving for my granddaughter. Okay, so she was born in May. Oh, terrific! So, uh, so we're, um, you know, so that's more fun. You know, it's a lot, lot easier being a grandparent than it is actually being a parent. I've decided. Mm-hmm. If you need any information on grandparenting, just look to your right. Josh Mulvihill has written many books on grandparenting. He doesn't. Look I got old him right enough. here in front of me, actually. Here, yeah. The past couple of years, he doesn't look old enough to me. 
Well, that has nothing to do with it. You got you got to have more gray hair. You don't have enough authority. He's in really, life. really smart. I've just aged really well. Have yeah. You? <laughs> God bless you, man. Yeah. All right. I have to admit, uh, probably two months ago, I had Rebecca McLaughlin on the show, and I was just mesmerized by her uh, how smart she was. And I saw this other presentation she gave from New York, and she said there are four things Christians have to reclaim: diversity, university, morality. And sexuality. Mm. So I thought maybe we'd take some time today to talk about those four things. When we talk about something like diversity, mm. um, it's interesting how uh, China is the global center for atheists, but by 2030 there could be more Christians in China than America. And 40% of Christians live in sub-Saharan Africa. We're pretty diverse. Yeah, is that an indication that the West is becoming more secularized somehow, mm-hmm. that there's fewer and fewer people? I mean, I hear all these stats, as I'm sure all the rest of you do too, that the next generation, 40% is considered religious nuns, and right. and people increasingly are not growing up in any kind of faith-filled home. So is this a product in these other countries where Christianity is still flourishing in some level? Is, is that part of what was yes. going on? Yes, and the tide is not going out. She said the tide is coming in Interesting for Christianity. Hmm. Hmm. Well, it does. I mean, Josh, you do a lot of work with uh, families, and I've got to believe you're seeing just even different from how I grew up. I don't know how you guys grew up, Brad, and, and uh, as well, in terms of church was just sort of a normal part of the yeah. assumed way of the week. I mean, it was Sunday morning, certainly Wednesday night. Those were sacred times, mm-hmm. and uh, oftentimes Sunday night was as well. And so I grew up with an assumed worldview that church was really integrated into my life week in and week out. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. I'm, I'm assuming, Josh, you see a lot of this with families Absolutely. these days. Absolutely. The challenge, I think we have families that are attending church less, and parents are putting a ton of um, reliance on the church itself to impact their kids' faith. And then the messages that are uh, unchristian, non-Christian, secularized in in themselves in the in the education world, it seems like they've increased in frequency, mm. and all of those things combine. And I think that becomes very challenging to have lifelong faith for the next generation. And so, uh, there's a lot there as far as uh, where a young person. Uh, is on a Sunday morning, what happens in the home, what they're hearing in schools. Uh, I think I'll, I'll get at what uh, what we're hitting at here. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens when there's lacrosse or hockey practice at 9 o'clock Sunday morning? I mean, right, that, I just, that was unthinkable. Uh, unthinkable. We, we, we might yeah. have had one basketball tournament a year in which we traveled, Maybe. sort of an end-of-the-year yes. tournament to celebrate, and it was actually even a little scandalous that you'd yeah. be away for the weekend that weekend. But it is, I mean, ice times are Sunday morning starting at 4.30 in the morning and going all throughout the day. And so if you do want to participate in a sport, yeah. I mean, Brad, you referenced you're just a, a grandfather. Have your kids talked at all about how they're going to handle that growing up? Yeah, you know, there, there's certainly, I think, even the way I raised my own kids is different from how I yeah. was raised. In fact... Uh, there, I was in a, a small farming community and they actually had one hour per week where there was a religious release time, they called it. And, <laughs> and everybody re- st- got an hour out of school <laughs> and went to their church, Yeah, you know, and that was just part of your normal weekly activity. And that's above and beyond going to church or anything. That was part of actually school, which, you know, I mean, it, that would be. I think, unthinkable probably today. Yeah, and I think among the many implications this has had is is I've seen such a dramatic decline in biblical literacy as I've been teaching at the university level since about 2002, 2003. 
I really began to have to adjust my lectures for the day because I had sort of assumptions that they might have come in with already having some biblical knowledge. Yeah. And I realized that my lectures were no longer connecting because there was confusion about even who King Solomon might have been. So sure. again, not, you know, we're not talking David or Noah, one of the biggest names in the, in the text, but not a, a, a small name in King Solomon. And I've said this before on air, but I think the last time I surveyed, it was nine out of 30 of my students had heard of King Solomon. And so mm. there's been a tremendous oh. shift in biblical literacy that I have mm. to almost start with the principles before I can even go into some new directions with it. How yeah. have you navigated the sports piece with your family? Yeah, you know, it's funny, too, because you, know, you were referencing you have five kids, and, and we set mm-hmm. out, we said, you know what, we're going to be really chill about this whole thing. <laughs> every uh, every one of our kids is going to get one activity, right? And then we didn't do the math from there, because five kids times right? one activity <laughs> times seven days in a week, and it got really busy really fast. And I remember when my son was in his last year in Little League, and so he was 12 years old, and he made the all-star team and we were doing all the traveling thing and hopefully making it to Little League World Series and all of that. But I looked around and I saw what was being required of the other families to have their kids move to the next level. And what, I mean, it was literally, it was private instruction. It was 12 mm-hmm. months out of the year. Uh, they were having to give two, three, four hours a day. There was nutritionists. I mean, these were 13 and 14-year-old kids that that was a trajectory. And I was really grateful when my son said, Dad, I don't want to sign up for this stuff. I'd rather just play, you know, rec soccer, some club soccer, and even that was pretty intense, but it was a good balance between competitiveness where he could learn some things that we all learned growing up in, in the competition sort of based area, those of us that played sports, but it wasn't just crazy off the hook and, and it felt more balanced. But I'll tell you what, it is really, really tricky. And, uh, and I'm grateful that my wife, Hallie, has, and she has so much biblical background as well that she's doing a lot of biblical training in the home because we just can't get to church Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday night, youth group, like all the stuff. It just isn't there anymore. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of pressure, isn't there? Tons, yeah. tons, yeah, yep. absolutely. And I think as we, as we, I think one of the things that's different, maybe in our age category, is we had Sunday school. Yeah, right. And so when you're kids, you get the the basic Bible stories. You get you know the the two by two onto the ark and that kind of stuff. And and my even my kids don't have that 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 yeah. traditional Sunday school experience where you learn biblical stories. Typically, in a lot of stories from the Old Testament, but even stories from the New Testament, you know, like Paul and Silas or whatever. Yeah, no, I'm a Bible professor for crying out loud, and I'm amazed at just how much, how many gaps are in my kids' awareness about Bible yeah. stories that we've had to really intentionally uh, create some other ways around sure. what otherwise would have been taught by the church. So it's a really interesting time. But as we uh, still stay in this diversity topic, um, I, Rebecca also cited um, that black Americans are 10% more likely to identify as Christians and they poll higher on every other evangelical marker. Mm. Going to fa- I'm going to church and everything else. Yeah, the the pastor who married Hallie, I mean, we just saw him again a couple months ago, and uh, he was inner city African American pastor out of Chicago. And I think one of the things that he would indicate is that um, the more economically um, sort of prosperous that you are, the more fragmented you be- you become from everybody else, and you no longer life just becomes all sort of about you and you don't have the community that you're leaning into. You don't have people that you're really hanging with. And uh, still, it, I mean, it's changing within the African-American community as well too, but there, there still is a deeper sense of community and ties and heritage and history of which faith is often a part of that. That seems to be the more you get empowered socially, the less faith has anything to do with your life. And that's happening certainly at, I think at the, the people who have the most prosperous reality in our society are often the people that have the least amount of faith associated mm-hmm. with it. But there's great diversity in the body of Christ. Incredible. There's no, there's no question. Yeah, oh, incredible. Yeah. Uh, next up, we're going to talk about morality. So we're going to take a little break right now. You're listening to Guy Talk 
Awfully glad to have the power panel of Peter, Brad, and Josh in studio. We'll be right back. Thanks for being with us today. I'm looking forward to this hour. I've been looking forward to it ever since uh, it started. <laughs> <laughs> Long time, Bill. And now we're well into it, so yeah. soon it'll be over. Has, has it matched your expectations <laughs> so far? It sounds, yeah. sounds like you're waiting for it to be it's done. It's met yeah. or exceeded. Oh, that's great. So you know. that's, that's really yeah. good. And it all started off with a, a message I heard, um, Rebecca McLaughlin, who was on the show a couple of months ago, and I heard her give this message how there are four areas that Christians need to reclaim. One was diversity. We just talked about that. The next one was morality, and the other one was university, and the last one was sexuality. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to uh, kick the tires on all four of those. Let's talk about morality now. Um, Interesting how a lot of people look at Christianity as almost the enemy of human rights. Hmm. We're the ones that aren't, you know, we're we're saying that... um, uh, we're not showing the kind of compassion and love that we should. And you look at pretty much every important social institution I know. throughout yeah, history, right. and it has its roots in Christianity, whether that's education, whether that's uh, hospitals, hospitals yeah. whether that's uh, organizations that came to help the needy in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I think a Salvation Army and many others like that. And uh, without you take those away and you look at the, um, the void that is there from a compassion standpoint and that uh, really exists for, to meet the needs of, of, uh, of humanity. And, uh, and Christianity is at the center of that. The statistic was that if you attend church uh, once a week or more, you're much more inclined to charitable giving, much more inclined to volunteerism, and not prone to criminal activity, <laughs> which makes for a much more stable world. Yeah. yeah. And I can't think of the last church service that I went to that didn't include some sort of emphasis, whether in the announcements or sort of a special guest or something in the sermon that wasn't outward looking on some level, that didn't that didn't emphasize and highlight a ministry that that church is doing in our world. So that's an interesting perception that the church is sort of removed from or not invested or involved in society. Everywhere I go, the church is trying to be invested and involved. I think sometimes, though, what's happened is there's a few voices that have been loud and on both sides, you know, both uh, left-leaning voices and maybe conservative voices. And what what I mean, you know, by maybe Christian voices who have voiced their disapproval of lifestyles because of the sin that it is and, and confronting that sin, and that gets confused with being unloving or unkind. And those are different issues. And I think sometimes we do, as Christians, sometimes we are unloving and unkind. And that's true. But not always. I think sometimes we speak truth, and sometimes the truth feels unloving or unkind. And Christians have made horrendous moral mistakes. Yeah. No question. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, and I'm sure we might get into it when we talk about that sexuality category later. But yeah, we'll it's get one to that the, later. You know, it's certainly one of the things that I see is is that there's a lot of critique of the church of being 
right or wrong, the the perception is reality in the situation that the church is hypocritical. There's there's been all these high profile moral mistakes having been made, and so there's an assumption among that all the you know all the churches function that way. So there. I think, Brad, you make a good point that uh, people are saying things pretty loudly against the church, and that can really wreak havoc on the perception of all the good that the church is doing that Josh outlined uh, so well. Yeah, as as the culture has become less Christian, it seems like they've pushed back against uh, almost the the Christian conscience uh, that is present within culture and has said, you know, whatever you want to believe is fine, but don't don't push that on us. And so we have what, uh, what I'd just describe as a new moral code that's being given to everybody in our in our society. And man, we're feeling the clash of that on so many different levels and in so many different ways right now. And primarily, I think you can summarize that by saying the moral code is a moral code of self-fulfillment. So yeah. you do what makes you happy. And if that doesn't harm anybody, then then, then it's okay. That's kind of your, your filter. Um, and, uh, and of course, we know that that runs counter to what we see in Scripture, which is a, a morality of self-denial to follow Christ, and uh, and when uh, when when those come into to clash with one another, we've got a decision to make. Um, and since I do a lot with young people, and and you you know we do many of us do in here, um, I think on this subject of morality, one of the things we're really needing to emphasize with that uh, that age group is you know w- what's going to make you most happy yeah. uh, it seems like maybe a a, a minor or a, maybe not a, a the, the 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 normal direction to take with them but the reality is they're going to make their choices about what they do and so do we based on what we think is going to make us most happy and of course the bible tells us that's when we live in obedience to god himself hmm. And then do you think the secular world looks at us and thinks that um, we're uh, better than others? We're coming across self-righteously or they perceive us that way, even though in our hearts we're not? Yeah, it's a good question. But I would have, if, if you had asked me that question 10 years ago, I, when the church, I think, still had a louder voice in society than it, than it currently does, I would have said, yeah, that probably was a critique I would have heard a lot of. But I, it's more sort of that I see, at least in the, in the circles in which I run among younger people, it's just more of an apathy and almost a disregard for. It, it, it's sort of a, why would I listen to the voice of the church now? So it's, it's not as much of, oh, you're all high and mighty as if you have authority and it's pretend authority. It's like you don't have really much authority at all. It's, it gets to what Josh was talking about when young people are growing up in a be-whatever-you-want-to-be culture and, and everybody's trying to empower them to be whatever they want to be. Now, the church doesn't have much of a role in, in these young people's lives. So I don't know what the critique would be among 40, 50, 60-year-olds now, but I know among young people, they don't even really consider the church's voice quite often as, as being relevant at all. Hmm. All right. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> no, a downer. No, it's, I mean, but, it's not a happy thought, that's no, it's for not, sure. But I, but I think there's an invitation in there as well um, that there's always these Josiah moments that happen all throughout history where there's always times of renewal, and it's usually when things are the darkest that uh, that a renewal begins to happen. And I don't know how close we are to something like that, but this isn't the first time in Christian history that there's been a long, you know, an increasing season of like, hmm, what, what role does the church have? But the church, God has a way of renewing things. And I, mm-hmm. I find that interesting to, to see what well, might Well, even, a, I mean, a, a Christian morality becomes a really strong apologetic yeah, in does. our current it really does. secular culture. People look at us and they see a different value system. They see a different lifestyle. And, uh, and to many, it's confusing. To some, it's very attractive. And, there's just a different way of living, and I, you know, I think 
uh, as you know, as Christians that are are living in uh, in in a what is becoming more of a Babylon every day, uh, that becomes a, a very very impactful um, witness and message that goes out into our into our culture. And so I think sometimes you know we I I don't want to listeners to feel a sense of hopelessness. The reality is, in darkness, a Christian morality shines brightest and yeah. allows for a great uh, great impact in a, in, a, in the salt and light of Christ to go out. A couple of weeks ago, Mayor Pete, who's one of the Democratic nominee or candidates running for president, was on a radio show talking about how he reads his Bible, and it seems that that life starts when you take your first breath. So that's what he understands that to be. So he's giving his moral uh, statement, yeah. his approach to what the, his Bible teaches him, yeah. and that and sadly will have probably a bigger influence on Americans than what they might be hearing in church. Yeah, I think that goes right to the heart of the issue, doesn't it? You know, he has a very mm-hmm. loud pr- platform and a very loud voice and a very interesting, to say the least, unique take on what Scripture would be teaching. I have not, I mean, in, in teaching about different views of abortion, even throughout history and some of my ethics class, that is a very unique view that he would share mm-hmm. and something like that, equating God, and I know what he's doing is he's equating God's breath, mm-hmm. which is sort of the um, insertion of the soul into the created being as uh, happening post uh, womb experience, and that's a really unique, different, uh, dare I say, sort of um, awkward view <laughs> to understand the scripture in that way. Mm-hmm. But he, to your point, he's going to have a, a tremendous influence, and I think it's—I don't remember the last time that I was in a church where the church staff really felt like they had a really equipped view of abortion. And so you have this voice over here saying that, but I think we're in a season where it'd be helpful to be equipping. Uh, on the opposite side of these to have a sophisticated response. Yeah. And not to mention, you find someone like Kanye who might be doing um, a nice endorsement for biblical values and speaking out against abortion. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd be curious, I don't, you know, Brad, I don't know what you think about the Conway West phenomenon, but... He's it, never you heard know, of him. It's, it's, <laughs> it's fun. He's an he's a artist, I understand, of some yeah. kind. But yeah, yeah, it's fascinating to see. I know there's a lot of skepticism about what's happening, but... Yeah, well, in fact, in we've, for a while. we've, you know, uh, I'm partly responsible for the student radio station, and right. we've, we've had this conversation about, well, should we start playing Kanye songs? You know, the, the, the students are thinking about it because, you know, well, are we, are we listening to this? You know, is this... Is this new something? And and I had to say, well, you know, I'm I'm a little bit. Uh, what can I say? I'm a I'm a little bit nervous, okay, because I feel like I got stung by Bob Dylan, you know, <laughs> back in '79 when Bob Dylan, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, I people don't know. say Dylan's still a believer. Well, I'm he could. Following. You know, I'm not saying he's not. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying that that the crickets are kind of loud for me. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Right. All right. I'm gonna have to go to break, but a nice. Uh, comment from a listener i think that ch- i think the church should change its language and talk less about church because that might cause people to think more about religion and legalism and the institutional church and instead talk about jesus and the kingdom of god amen and a great comment love smart that. listeners love that if you want to ask a question or have us clarify something we've said or jump into this discussion let us know 877-933-2484 we'll, i love all these smart comments by smart listeners be right back
Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for being with us today. Guy Talk is underway. Peter Kapsner, Brad Johnson, Josh Mulvihill. So glad that you guys have joined in this discussion. I'm really starting to talk about uh, four different things that we need to take back, um, all inspired by a talk I, I heard by Rebecca, Rebecca McLaughlin. She said, diversity, morality, now we're to our third one, university. How Christians founded universities, and we have somehow conceded science to atheists. Wow, that's what quite up, a statement. What up with that? I mean, I remember the first time that I heard that the Ivy League schools were actually founded on, you know, their divinity schools primarily. I had absolutely no idea that that was part of the history, given how secularized they have become. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, I think some of it is a pursuit in my years and in being involved in university, even to get tenure, even to advance in your career, you have to always be pursuing some sort of new knowledge. You always have to be publishing. And, and so I'm not sure what will happen there, but you're always sort of kind of edgy and and whatever has been assumed in knowledge for a period of time, you kind of like let that go and you go on to the next thing. And I just wonder where in that process that so many universities decided to reject a, a Christian foundation in their teaching. But to your point, Josh, that you were saying earlier, I think morality and, and ethics and philosophies, all of these things suffered as a result of unhinging themselves from Christianity. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I, I could probably speak to this a little bit being the full-time member of the University of Northwestern here. And I think one of the great things that the school has done is set themselves apart, yes. you know, in terms of, you know, things like daily chapel and, and, but, you know, I, I open every one of my classes with the word of prayer. I mean, imagine doing that in a, in a state school. No, we, we stand alone when it comes to a biblical worldview here at Northwestern. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I don't readily or easily advocate for an organization or institution, but I do hear very freely because and being behind the scenes and seeing the the pastoral care with which professors approach the classroom, uh, it is quite remarkable, and the kids really do benefit uh, from from this sort of holistic education. I love the idea of the role of yes, I'm your professor, but I actually might care about your life uh, too a bit. And I can't when when students get a little wind of that that you might actually care about them. It's amazing how they start cracking open. And you can really begin to share all sorts of things about God's kingdom. To use the the language of the listener that just wrote in before the break, I mean, there really is a sense of God's kingdom here and uh, and learning how to follow Jesus in some beautiful ways. Another listener chimed in, Tyler said, I think we should continue to use the word church, but just define it. Right. Too many people want to ignore what the Bible says about the church, about what God says, and about loving his church. We need to be a part of the church body it's an important thing that God has established. Yeah, my understanding of the definition of the church in the New Testament was simply the people who had given their lives to Jesus and were following God into the unknown through the power of the Spirit to bring his light and reconciling work into the world. It was it was the very sense of self. Yeah. You ever said that before? Uh, no, maybe not. Not in that. <laughs> that was brilliant. Well, well, I don't think I could repeat that. <laughs> uh, you know, but it wasn't, a, right? It wasn't a building with a steeple and a sign right. and, and um, in an organization. And I'm not saying those things are bad things, but I think to capture the heart of what the church was meant to be, which is simply the people that are following. Could you say that again? Again? I can try. Yeah, I'd so, love to hear that again. All right, so the people of God following Jesus, uh, being led by the Spirit to shine his light into the world and God's reconciling work and just bringing that good news to everyone they saw. Beautiful. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you think uh, you, secular universities are places where you're free to go share ideas, or do you think you have to tread on eggshells every time you have a thought that might be counter to what's being taught? 
The, the time that I'm in panels in different universities, uh-huh. and I'm sort of the token Christian in those panels. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, yeah, you do not share freely. You, there's sort of you have two and a half strikes uh, against you, and there's a pretty wicked curveball coming down to swing at strike three at that point because you, your views are already assumed to be somewhat archaic and certainly bigoted in all of the language that's being used. And so, I, yeah, when I'm part of those panels, it isn't a, a pleasant experience uh, for sure. Yeah, I think there might be, and we're seeing maybe a a subculture of pushback against that. And I'm thinking specifically of uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, who came out in, in Canada a couple years back, and he talked about, and he actually presents a a psychological perspective of the Old Testament, hmm. which was kind of, he's a psychology professor, he's a clinical psychologist. Anyway, to make a long story short, he's talking about how our Western civilization is based on this document, the Bible. And he, he and he's a you know I would call him a secular humanist. I don't even, he's not a Christian or anything like that. Mm. But what the point I'm getting to is that that I think there and he's he's you know he's got thousands of people viewing his material, millions of people viewing millions. his yeah, yeah. millions of people viewing his material, and and I think it's very fascinating that that I think there is the the culture recognizes that and they're given some pushback to something that has been pushed up. A, uh, against them, I think. So I think I'm not saying that this is the prevailing. It's certainly not the norm because the norm is definitely what what you said. Yeah, the norm is is certainly um, you know we are archaic as Christians and we we think in a very bigoted view. I think one of the invitations in all of that, just quickly though, is that as things are increasingly secularized, you don't live in this weird sort of blended Christianity where you, you can't tell if you're the culture and you can't tell if you're Christianity. And so there's increasingly distinctive ways. And Josh, you were talking about it earlier, I think, too, where uh, Christian life can become far more compelling when it is completely unwedded from the society around it. And and it really, again, it isn't this blended sort of thing that doesn't make sense. It really stands on its own. Yeah. Yeah. And I, as we talk about the university, that fuels all of that morality, right, that we're yeah. seeing today and becomes critical for Christians to have an influence there and to recognize, I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said the philosophy in in one generation in the classroom becomes the philosophy of the government in the next. And so we could, you know, we can generally see what's happening in our, in our universities. And it, it worries me for the kind of world that my children are going to grow up in and my grandchildren are going to be uh, and, you know, we, we look at Scripture and it talks about as a man thinks, so he is, as a woman thinks, so she is. Uh, and so what what we're putting in our kids' minds and our young people's minds is critical for not only for us to be aware of the messages that are there and to make informed decisions potentially about where our young people go, but also our engagement as uh, as as parents and guardians over our young people to, if they're going to be in some of those locations where the the messages are not aligning well with Scripture, we need to be able to have those conversations early and often and and uh, be teaching those biblical truths so that they hopefully don't become captured by those ideas that we don't want them to give themselves over to. All right, I think we're down to our last category, which is sexuality. Mm. I think I've left a little extra time for mm-hmm. this one because it might require it. Oh, yeah, no. For sure. Well, Rebecca, in her uh, presentation, she was saying how Christians need to reclaim sexuality and how... Marriage is meant to point us to Christ. And she says right now, uh, if as a believer, she says my opposition to gay marriage uh, to her secular friends is the same opposition to them as mixed marriage. Hmm. It's very simple. Well, 
you don't oppose mixed marriage, why would you oppose same-sex marriage? Yeah, that's really the question, isn't it? I think when marriage has been defined uh, as sort of a journey of companionship and and it's only about the love between the two people, I think we miss on what the heart of marriage is meant to be. And even uh, in within that heart of marriage, there is uh, a differentiation where male and female are part of the deal, both bearing God's image in unique ways. And, and uh, Josh, I was just paging through your book here, just even talking about there's a little subtopic where you said there's a lot about our marriages that is to the glory of God. And, and it's these two image bearers that are distinct from one another um, that the point of it all is that marriage is a bigger call than just trying to find companionship and love. Is, companionship yeah. and love is simply the soil uh, that allows us to do the call that we're meant to do. And that yeah. is a call that requires both male and female to be at the table. Yeah, it's not about just the love of one man for one woman. It's, right. it's this gospel billboard that tells a story and we each get to be a part. Uh, you know, men, uh, husbands get the Jesus role and women get the... Uh, the church role in the sense that what God's given the church, he gives the wife and, and vice versa with the husband. Uh, and that's uh, that that becomes a, a living drama that we get to live out with not only our family, but those that are seeing our marriage. And when that's when when a marriage falls apart, that's why it, it impacts those that are closest to it so impact so significantly, because if it is a gospel message, then uh, then you you know by nature you start to question the whole authenticity of what a person believes uh you know and are raised with and so yeah marriage is is uh is critical it's not surprising to me that our culture's hitting on that kind of subject uh we i think the issue in the twenty first century for the church today is the issue of of humanity the doctrine of humanity and this is at the heart of that sexuality and marriage and uh, what's a man and what's a woman and the whole gender piece, they all fall under that together. Yeah, it's such a critical piece of this. I was with a friend of mine who is in a gay relationship and we were out to dinner and he was talking about, I, I don't understand all the objections. I simply, like anybody else, want to just have a companion to watch Netflix with that night and enjoy my life together. And it's a very powerful and very understandable objection. I don't think we can underestimate that. But to your point, I, what it requires is a redefinition of what marriage is meant to be, because mm-hmm. uh, I think with with McLaughlin's point too that um, my young people coming into class would think that marriage is all about finding a lifelong partner in a monogamous, loving, self-sacrificing relationship for a lifetime. And if I use, if I was to say all that again, and uh, and that definition does not exclude male, male, female, female relationship, a lifelong monogamous, self-sacrificing relationship. There's nothing about that definition, but that's how it's been construed for a very long time and all the wedding homilies that I've heard over these last 30 years. And so we have to get back and explore what is distinctively male, what is distinctively female, how does each being carry the image of God, and why is each being needed at the table in the context of marriage? And that's a really deep, um, but there's there's a lot of uh, accessible work within the biblical text that teaches us a lot about what is distinctively male and female. Mm-hmm. When, when the sexual revolution happened in the 60s, and there was this idea that you could have more commitment-free sex, that's pure poison. Yep. And when you think it was going to create more happiness, it produced the exact opposite result. Um, women in particular, their happiness declined. There were mental and physical health problems resulting from it. Yeah, in in the class, we talk a little bit about the generation of the 60s and 70s in this class and sexuality that, to your point, Bill, 
that the divorce rate was 6% in right, right around 1900, and that was historically stable for generations and mm-hmm. generations. 1960s happened that you just described, and in 1970, the rippling impact of that was that the divorce rate to, went north of 55% at that point. And so when you see such a statistical change from 6 to 55, you have to explain why, and you just hit the heart of why uh, so many marriages begin to fracture at that point. Would Christianity be the greatest movement for women in all of history? Should be. Should be. Should be. Yep. Should I mean, be. in the Greco-Roman world, uh, men were pouring themselves into their wives because they had all kinds of relationships outside of their marriage. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, and Brad, you referenced uh, this idea of love as sort of being this endorsement approval kind of thing. Love is simply, I have a tenderhearted affection for you and I'm willing to give up my own good on behalf of your good. And that's what men and women are supposed to be doing for each other. That's authentic yeah. love. I'm not here to endorse all of your ways of life. I am here to try to identify what is wholeness in God's beautiful kingdom and how can we move towards that together. Yeah. That's a different kind of love. And that kind of love exclu- excludes things that are harmful. It doesn't endorse everything. And it's horrible to uh, redefine a word like marriage. For sure. Um, and I think it was um, N.T. Wright was saying in 1907 in Russia or 1917 in Russia, uh, they would start calling people non-persons. It's a lot easier to kill them if they're wow. a non-person. Yeah, wow. yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a great example. And so when to, you start redefining words, you yeah. got to be really careful what you're doing. Well, and to the listener's point before about, you know, what does the word church mean? Um, even the word marriage in my class, we start using the phrase one flesh covenant uh, instead of marriage, just because marriage has been co-opted mm-hmm. uh, in so many different ways in our culture. But the one flesh covenant is a uniquely biblical phrase that describes the male-female relationship. It's love across differences. It's sacrificial. It's flesh uniting and life creating. It's beautiful. That's that's what marriage was yeah. designed by God f- to be. Yeah, to recapture and, that, right? And a glimpse and a glimpse of you know, it's a tiny taste of Christ's love for us. Wouldn't it be? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, that's what it's meant to be. I mean, the scriptures are pretty clear. There's so many metaphors about uh, Jesus and his bride, right? Yep. And, and so to explore what that relationship is about, I think we could get a lot of cues about what our relationships can be like. All right. We're going to take a little break. When we come back. Lots of guide talk uh, still is going to happen. Peter Kapsner, Brad Johnson, Josh Mulvihill are my guests. They're the power panel. We've got time for a question or two. Let us know what it is. 877-933-2484. can be a question or a comment. We'll be right back. Back to the show. Guy Talk is happening. I got an amazing power panel today. Got Peter, Brad, and Josh. And we're talking about a presentation I heard by Re- Rebecca McLaughlin. And she was a guest on the show a couple months ago. And she was talking about how Christians have to reclaim four different areas diversity, morality, university, and sexuality. Mm-hmm. I think lots of good questions coming in. Um, 
Here's a question from my wingman, Terry. Not sure if there's a correlation or not, but does the rising acceptance of the homosexual lifestyle coincide with the easy and sweeping accessibility of pornography? They certainly connect. Um, you know, I don't know if you call one the gateway to the other, but, um, man, you, uh, pornography, what I, you know, I've talked about with my kids, that's, that's, that's the playground, right? The battleground's what happens in your, your heart. And mm. with pornography, that's the playground, what's happening on the screen. And so, um, if, if we can, if a culture can, um, impact the morality the, and sexuality so that the heart desires that, well, then that's just the natural um, progression is to go find that wherever you can, whether that's on the screen or uh, in uh, in some other ways. And so, uh, yeah, I do. I, I think they're connected. Yeah, I think once you open up the box that way, then almost everything becomes fair game over time. I, I don't know what you use sort of a gateway. I don't know if it's akin to getting involved in drugs, but it seems like uh, they're there does get to be, uh, it's, it's sort of hard to say, but the idea of I've, I've gotten bored with this form of drug or this form of sexuality. And so uh, I do know there's a psychological principle that when you jump off a diving board at three meters, you get a certain adrenaline rush. And then by the time you've jumped off at 10 times, you don't get that rush. You have to go to the, the six meter to get the same rush that you originally got at the three meter. And eventually you got to go to the 10 and the 20. And I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of that is happening in sort of this sexual exploration that I'm no longer getting the rush here, so I'm going to keep exploring in these different directions, and one thing just keeps leading to another. Another question, um, can Christian, how can Christians be considered bigoted when they hold a different view? Not two views. Bradley. <laughs> hmm. Step up to that mic. You know, the, that kind of, um, uh, you know, and... and and at this point, we're kind of talking about semantics, right? We're talking about the definition of the word of what, what, what is bigoted, what is not. I think, uh, from my perspective, you, um, you, you believe what you believe, and and then you know you throw it out there in society. The problem is that when it when it comes in in defiance, or should I say, coming against a, a political world view, and I think this is one of the problems with with this, this whole so, social justice warrior that we're seeing right now, where they are very, very um, uh, talking to us a lot about tolerance and, and acceptance, and yet they're very intolerant of Christians, which I think is it, it maybe the point of the question, I guess, in my opinion. That's, that's kind of what, what the, the question is. And I always think it's almost uh, ironic to me that, that, um, that this underpinnings of our Western society, in fact, you know, all the humanities that have been traditionally in school, they're based around some of these moralities that, that are espoused in Scripture. And so this idea that that these warriors are coming up with, that uh, this flies in the face of... And, and I think they're just they're trying to make change. And, and sometimes in that, they're throwing the baby out with the bathroom bathwater mm. you know they're just they're just saying listen you know this doesn't fit anymore boom 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 throw it all away and they don't understand the underpinnings uh, of the of the moral the ethics you know uh that that underpin uh their own beliefs mm-hmm. calling someone bigoted implies a, a morality right absolutely I have to, it has to be based on something <laughs> it's ironic and i think that i mean that's the that's the whole point we have a different morality and so we're gonna attack you because yours doesn't align with mine. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Absolutely. And I think the way that I grew up is that bigot would have been a word only associated for, um, 
racial differences where you didn't tolerate a, a racial difference. And mm. I, I think it's interesting that it's been co-opted in the sexuality conversation. I was listening to a program on NPR not too long ago about some initial social justice activists. They saw the power of the racial reconciliation movement and they decided to begin to intentionally co-opt it on behalf of the LGBTQ movement as well and, and use much of the same language. And so to use a word like bigoted that historically didn't have to do with anything other than a, a racial difference yeah. and, and an intolerance there and to co-opt it in this stream. You know, you're talking about being born with a race ethnicity. You're talking about being born with that kind of heritage. And uh, and there's sort of an assumed worldview that you're either born gay or born straight. But all of secular science resists that view. There isn't anybody out there, even within secular science, that is suggesting you are born one way or the other. And so there already is a significant difference between race and sexuality. And yet they've just been melded together in the same kind of conversation, unfortunately. The whole bigoted um component is a tactic yeah. as well uh, that has come right out of rules um, for radicals by Saul Alinsky, that if you mm. make it personal, uh, you are already uh, moving forward an agenda. And so whether it's uh, bigoted language or any of the other uh, names that individuals get called today, that's a tactic. And Christians, I think, need to recognize that uh, and also not become... Um, uh, shy about speaking up for the truth just because those labels get uh, get sent our way because they will. I mean, you. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can live for Christ in our culture today in any kind of way that is, um, is is seen by others and not probably get called those kinds of names. and And I think Christians just need to know that that's probably coming and uh, and and be secure and confident enough in uh, in their stance with Christ to know that that's okay. Mm. I like it. So, Peter, you're in front of you is one of four of Josh's books. Yeah. And he's, his latest one is Biblical Worldview. See it. See and it right having not read it, do you have any questions for him? <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do. So, I, you know, Josh, I'm curious, how do, you, uh, how do you help best form a biblical worldview among kids? And maybe one of the questions that I would ask is, how important is it that you have people outside of the parents helping form that worldview for the kids? Yeah, we look at it as a three-legged stool. So you have family, church, and school. And so the ideal is to get all three of those teaching the truth of God's Word. And the more of those that you have, the better. As I mentioned, I have five kids. So I love having as many people as possible speaking truth into the lives of my kids. So uh, for us, obviously, we're trying to do our best as parents at home. Uh, we want grandparents uh, to be speak, stepping up to the plate. They've got a role according mm-hmm. to Scripture, so they're part of the family leg. Uh, then, of course, we want churches teaching the Bible and, uh, and and getting serious about passing on that Christian heritage, that Christian faith to the next generation. Uh, and then we want education. We talked about taking back uh, university. Uh, man, kids get 16,000 hours between kindergarten and 12th grade. That's a lot of hours uh, that can shape shape a heart and shape a mind, and so uh, so families, uh, you know, we get those three those three uh, pretty important in shaping what a kid believes. What do you do if if your child's in public education and they're coming home at four o'clock, you know, off the bus, and every time, and they've learned all kinds of things, maybe in non Christian ways? Is there things that parents can yeah. do in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. Parents need to be active in the the school system and. Uh, they need to be doing the the best that they can to know what messages are being communicated. That's gotten uh, increasingly difficult because a lot of the textbooks now are digital. Uh, and so families, you have to go looking. And uh, the average um, parent, I like to say, takes about an hour on, a, on an average day to 
uh, really, you know, what your kids are reading, what they're watching, those are the things you should be reading and watching too so you can have those conversations. Kids can't bring home things that they don't know what to look for. Yeah, that was two questions out of that book. That wasn't no? bad. That wasn't terrible. Yeah, we've only got a couple couple of minutes left. You know, we've encouraged all our listeners to read through the book of Luke with us, a yeah. chapter a day, so it doesn't take too much energy just to know that today is the fifth, so you would have been reading Luke chapter 5. And um, when I think of Luke chapter 5 um, and everything that Jesus does in this chapter, um, teaching and Simon uh, Peter uh, realizing that he falls at Jesus's knees and says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. You know, you start to get in the presence of God and you start to see who he is and you start to realize who you are. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful moment, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I once asked uh, my, my mentor, who is, he was probably about 88 years old at the time, and, and Hallie and I were sitting with him. We said, do you ever sin anymore? <laughs> and, uh, and he was sort of, he got a little smile on his face and he said a phrase that I'll never forget. He said, the closer that I get to Jesus, the more spots that I see. Yeah. But he wasn't afraid about it. He was, he was grateful for his Savior that could go into those spots with him at that. Even it was an amazing comment. Yeah. John Stott, the great John Stott, was asked, by somebody, do you, uh, he said, I wish, this person said, I wish I could be more like you. And John Stott said, if you could see mm. inside my heart, you'd slap my face. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, on that happy note, let's, uh, <laughs> thanks guys for coming in. I always love guy talk. That's and great, so do the listeners. So thank you so much, Dr. Josh Mulvihill, Brad Johnson, Dr. Peter Kapsner. They made up the power panel today. If you missed any of this discussion, I think you're going to want to go back and start over. Go to myfaithradio.com. Check it out. All right. The beautiful and amazing queens of the roundtable are up next. We'll take a short break and bring the ladies in. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.